It is my delight again to open up Second Peter with you this evening as we continue our study. So go ahead and take your Bible and go to Second Peter. And as you do so, I'm certain you're aware that Christendom is filled with false teachers, false prophets who claim to be ministering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just to kind of introduce you to some of the most famous and some of the most impactful and the wealthiest in this category of pastors, you might have heard of a man named Creflo Dollar. He started his ministry. Somebody said, "Woo, okay, I'm not sure I want to support that individual after you hear what I just say. But Creflo Dollar started his ministry in Atlanta called the World Changers Church International. He boasts 15,000 members at his church and is worth about $27 million. In Nigeria, a pastor by the name of Chris Ayakilomi started the Love World Ministries with 40,000 members. In addition to this church, he invests in real estate ventures and music production. He's worth about $50 million. Probably the most famous name in this, this genre of ministry is Benny Hinn. He started his ministry in Orlando, Florida. He currently is in Fort Worth, Texas. He boasts 18 million subscribers globally to his ministry. And people estimate he's worth about 60 million. In Nigeria, Enoch Adeboye, who prefers to be called Daddy Geo. So if you ever meet him, make sure you call him Daddy Geo. He is one of the most popular pastors in Nigeria and the world, really. Started a church called Redeemed Christian Church of God. It's been around for 30 years. One of the biggest in Nigeria. He's worth about 55 million. David Odiopi in Nigeria as well started the church, Living Faith Church, and a ministry called The Winner's Chapel. So any losers are not welcome there. He has many jets and houses all over the world. One of the wealthiest pastors in all of Africa, estimated to be worth $150 million. T.D. Jakes in Texas started the church, The Potter's House, boasts membership of 30,000 people, and he's worth over $150 million. And the last name I'll bring to your attention is Apollo Quiboloi in the Philippines. A man who has gone through multiple ministries in his time, but in the last 30 years, he's been a part of a church called the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. Currently, in fact, as of uh, earlier, as I looked at some YouTube, informa- uh, YouTube videos, he's building the world's biggest cathedral for his church. It'll have a capacity of 75,000 seats called the King, King's Dome. He's influential all over the world. Asia, North America, Middle East, Europe, South and Central America, Africa. He's got investments everywhere, estates all over the world, um, investing in institutions, global TV networks, radio stations, newspapers, media entities. He's actually called the political kingmaker because during elections in the Philippines, he's a highly sought-after individual who can endorse politicians. He's worth about $160 million. Dollars, and he likes to be known as the owner of the universe and the son of God. And there are biographies about him. It's shocking to hear him talk about his ministry, his wealth, justify it. 
And about a year ago, last November 10th, here in Santa Ana, he was actually indicted by the courts of sexual abuse of children, sex trafficking, fraud, financial fraud, visa fraud, immorality with his own female pastors. He's on the FBI most wanted list. And yet he is one of the most famous religious leaders in the world. During COVID, some of these teachers and many, many more have claimed to be able to heal from COVID. And they said, we have a unique new power. We can do it through the telephone. You've got to keep the six feet appropriately, right? So we can do it through the telephone, six, long distance even healing. Others have claimed to heal from AIDS and cancer. Many of them have been indicted and actually spent time in prison for corruption, financial corruption, massacres of other individuals, political movement fraud, arms deals, internationally renowned. As we begin to research the frauds and the false teachers in the world, you begin to wonder why would people follow them? And yet they do. The 30 biggest churches in the United States boast attendance of 15,000 each or more. Osteen, for example, has 43,000 that he boasts of. In Africa, the biggest church is 275,000 members. And there are over 20 churches in Africa that have at least 20,000 people in them. In Asia, the three largest churches, the biggest church has 480,000 members. The second biggest, 225,000. And then the third biggest, 140,000. And there are dozens and dozens of churches with 20 or more thousand people in them. You go to South America and the story repeats itself. There are millions and millions of people trapped in these false churches. It's as if they've never read 2 Peter chapter 2. It's as if they've never heard the warning that we'll hear this evening from 2 Peter that there will be teachers who are false teachers are false prophets, and Peter says in verse 3, they will exploit you. They will malign the way of the truth, and their destruction is near. So as we look at 2 Peter chapter 2, I'd like for us to consider that Peter takes this image of a false teacher and a false prophet, prophet, And demonstrates it as somebody that we should not imitate as we pursue the godly life. In chapter 1, as we learned last week, Peter introduces the godly life. He does this for the whole book. But in chapter 1, he focuses on the pursuit of the godly life. And what we saw is that throughout the book, he will have synonyms and antonyms for godliness. Like moral excellence, self-control, holiness, righteousness, spotlessness, and blamelessness. As in antonyms, he'll talk about unrighteousness, corruption, lusts, and many other terms. In other words, the whole purpose of the book of 2 Peter is to make an argument from prison months before he's executed that the Christian pursues godliness. And what ungodliness looks like, he's going to address in the second chapter. And so as he starts the book, It talks about the promise of the godly life. That is to say, in verse 3, we have everything that we need to live the godly life. God did not withhold anything from us in order to allow us to live godly. And the provision for that is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, specifically the knowledge of Jesus Christ that we gain and we're to pursue for the rest of our lives. 
as we look into the glory of Christ. We're being transformed into his moral likeness. But in verses 5 through 11, he tells us we need to persevere in this ambition. As much as God has supplied all things to us to live godly, he now says we are to supply all diligence in order to actually accomplish godliness. And that will ensure our entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say that we will have assurance of our salvation. Peter in verses 12 to 15 commits to reminding the Christian that this is what he or she is to pursue. As long as he's alive, he makes this this promise that he will remind us, which means that we should remind one another that we are to pursue godliness. And in the final paragraph in chapter 1, he talks about the power for this godly life, and that is the word of God. He calls it a lamp in verse 19. The one that shines into our hearts, leading us in our lives every single day. And he says that this word, the truth, that is scripture, was not given to us by man's innovation. It wasn't given to us by man's interpretation, but rather by divine inspiration. The entire Godhead, the Trinity, was involved in the authorship of scripture. Therefore, in verse 19, we're to pay careful attention to it. And as we do so, our lives change. And we are conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. But as he turns into chapter 2, he says that there are people who deny this. People who deny the coming of Jesus Christ. And so he wants to warn us about the individual who is ungodly, but more of a danger to those who are truly saved, is that these individuals live lives of ungodliness, but they bring with them destructive heresies, as he calls them in verse 1, that ultimately lead to damnation. So in chapter 2, he gives us a warning against ungodliness. And he begins with a prediction about the ungodly. He says, There will be people who will enter the churches in the future who will teach destructive heresies. And the way you identify those individuals is through their ungodly lives. We read in the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 1. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be also false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned or blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you. With false words, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. As Peter transitions from chapter 1 to chapter 2, he juxtaposes true prophecy with false prophecy. The ending of chapter 1 is all about true prophecy that comes from the Holy Spirit and God is the author. But now you have false prophets at the very beginning of chapter 2. People who are not in any way empowered by God, rather they are inventing their own teaching. And Peter warns that they will come in the future, but this is nothing new. He said this false prophets arose among the people. In other words, in the past, there were individuals like this, and they will keep coming. In Ezekiel chapter 13, we read about such individuals. In Ezekiel 13, beginning in verse 2, God says, Son of man, 
prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration. Listen to the word of the Lord, they say. Thus says the Lord God in response, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, The Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you say, The Lord declares? But it is not I who have spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. Similar to what we see in Second Peter 1, there is lying, there is deception, there is inspiration from themselves, and there is judgment that God promises, I am against you, he says. There are many passages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament warning of false prophets as they come with their own machinations, their own innovative ideas, trying to deceive people, and as Peter says, take advantage of them. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 warns about such individuals when he says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So Peter and Paul align in observing that false prophets, false apostles, false teachers will enter the church because they're connected to Satan. The source behind all of these false prophets is Satan himself. He disguises as an angel of light. It was Jesus who said in John 8, 44, the devil does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus attributes all lies and false deception coming from Satan himself. And in the same chapter, Jesus accuses the Jewish leaders of being of the devil, his offspring. Because they pervert scripture, they disobey scripture. And he says in verse 37, because my word has no place in you. So instead of leaning on the word of Christ, they lean on their own interpretation of Scripture, which we see in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus repeatedly correcting. So in our chapter, in verse 1, Peter says, there are false prophets, there are false teachers. And in verse 21, he says, they have turned away from the holy commandment. Do you see the relationship to the word of God? Not only in the passages I just read, but in this chapter. The reason that they're false teachers and false prophets is because ultimately at the core, they have turned away from the holy commandment. And that set them on the path of ungodliness towards destruction of their own souls. And so to warn us, Peter says, they will exploit you in verse 3 and they will deceive you in verse 2. As we delve into this chapter, I'd like to remind you that some of you, as you've read your New Testaments, you've probably read Jude, one of the shortest books in the Bible. And if you were to ever compare 2 Peter 2 with Jude, you'd see significant overlap, significant similarities. And so it's good for us to understand what is happening between those two books as as to why there's such common thematic material. People wonder who wrote first, who copied whom. 
Did you copy Peter or vice versa? Well, I'd like to propose to you that most likely Peter wrote first. First of all, Peter warns about the coming of the false prophets, whereas Jude in chapter 1 verse 4 says they're here. In fact, you see the urgency in it because he says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. That was the intent of him sitting down to write the the epistle of Jude. But then he said, but false prophets have come. So in other words, Peter's warning, Jude is saying they're here. Hence, Peter being first. Secondly, in verse 18 of Jude, we actually see a direct quote from 2 Peter 3.3, where Jude says, mockers will come in the last times following their ungodly lusts. And he says in the same section that this is what was prophesied by the apostles. He doesn't say apostle, even though he's quoting Peter, but apostles. Suggesting that there are other apostles who had the same prophecies before him. And if you read Paul, you'll see Paul multiple times warning of false prophets in 2 Corinthians, in 1 Timothy, in 2 Timothy. So again, Jude seems to be leaning on other apostles. Jude was not an apostle. So it's more likely that Jude is copying an apostle rather than Peter imitating or copying a non-apostle. Beyond that, I said this last week, that 2 Peter is a very cohesive book, a very unified book under the banner of the godly life. Everything fits perfectly in this book. And so because of that, it's most likely that he did not import foreign material from another writing, Rather, he thought through the argument carefully and crafted it for us as a literary masterpiece. And one last thing I'd say is Peter is in prison when he writes this book. He's in the same prison that Paul was in. We know that from last week. And in 2 Timothy 4, we find out that Paul did not have his scriptures with him. He's asking Timothy to bring the scriptures to him. Most likely, Peter also did not have other New Testament writings with him when he wrote this book. But we know that he wrote this in prison and somehow it got out and then circulated around the churches and then most likely Jude got a copy of it and was able to use it to explain that what is happening in the churches in his time, just a few years after Second Peter, by the way, Peter prophesied about this and predicted that this would happen. So that is how the two books connect. If you ever wonder why there's such similarity. And as Peter begins to explain to us and warn us about the false prophets, he he says, pay attention to their teaching and their character. Because often those two go hand in hand when we evaluate false teachers. And in verse 1, he says, these false teachers who are among you, who will be among you, you they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. In other words, they are bringing false teaching into the church. The idea here, the imagery here, is to sneak something in covertly. It's as if they are functioning like a special ops military unit, entering a location in the darkness of night to take out a terrorist. And whenever that happens in the military, there's death and destruction that follows when there's a covert operation. That's the imagery that's being used here by Peter when he says these individuals are sneaking into the church to destroy you. And what awaits them, he says, is destruction at the end of verse 1. 
they bring swift destruction upon themselves. Most of the time, this term for destruction in the New Testament is used to refer to final judgment, eschatological judgment. I'll talk a little bit more about this later as we continue because destruction keeps coming up in this chapter and judgment keeps coming up. But they're also characterized by hypocrisy. Their character is flawed. And so he says in verse 1, they deny the master who bought them. In other words, they're characterized by hypocrisy. Peter doesn't use the word Lord here. The one we're familiar with, Lord Jesus Christ. He'll use it later. He used it in chapter 1. He'll use it in chapter 3. But he doesn't use this term here. The word here is despot, master. It's a different Greek word, which signified somebody who's an owner. One who possessed a house filled with slaves, and they were subservient to him. They were to obey him. They knew that they belonged to him as servants, and he was, their, he was the master, and they were supposed to be obedient. And so here, Peter uses this term, I think, strategically to demonstrate that they are in the church. They're among you. They claim to be the servants of Christ. Paul says the same thing. They claim to be the apostles of Christ, ministers of Christ. But they deny with their lives the master who supposedly owns them. I'll develop that idea a little bit later as well as it keeps coming up. And so Peter introduces at the very beginning the prediction of the coming of these false teachers. And how do you identify them? In verse 2 he says, many will follow their sensuality. He immediately focuses on their immoral lives. Eight times in this book, seven in this chapter and then once in chapter 3, he will focus on their immorality, on their sensuality. It's an expression of excess. It's somebody who has no restraint whatsoever in his life as to sexual debauchery. It doesn't mean that every single false teacher lives to the utmost in his excess and sensuality. But our pastor has said this many times. When you see a a religious leader begin to modify orthodox doctrine, Oftentimes, it's because he's trying to cover up a secret life of sin. When they begin to remove hell from Christian doctrine or redefine the biblical ethic on sexuality, whether homosexuality is is a sin or not, oftentimes, later, it comes out that they have a secret life of sin. And so Peter says, many times, their destructive heresies, their false teaching, comes along with a life of immorality. See, a certain individual may claim to be God's spokesman, our pastor writes. But if his life is characterized by corruption, lust, and immorality, it it proves that he's actually a fraud. And what happens in verse 2, because of them, the way of the truth is maligned or blasphemed, more literally. The world begins to mock Christianity. And you've read articles from L.A. Times to New York Times to many other liberal journals or uh, investigative resources where they mock Christianity because of the way Benihin lives and in investigations he has to go through because of fraud and other individuals. People you begin to evangelize tell you, well, what about this Christian man or that Christian prophet and so on. Their lifestyle solicits mockery from the world. That is what Peter is saying. People blaspheme Christianity because of them. 
contrast what happens in verse 2 with what is supposed to be happening because of the Christian life. In 1 Peter 4, Peter will use the same terminology when he describes the Christian life. And this is what he says in verse 3. The time has already passed for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And they blaspheme you. So either the Christian life solicits blasphemy from the world because you're so godly. And you're so, you're so committed to Christ and you are just killing sin in your life and you're pursuing godliness. That is the intent of the Christian life. Or the world mocks and blasphemes because of the corruption that they see in Christians. A couple weeks ago, Nathan Buznitz preached from Titus chapter 2. A passage that addresses various individuals in the church. And each of those little paragraphs ends in the same way. When he speaks to women who are supposed to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God would not be slandered. The reason we pursue holiness is so that the word of God is not slandered. In verse 8, he talks to young men who are supposed to be sound in the word, not to be under reproach, so that the opponent would be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And in verse 9, he talks to slaves, who are not supposed to steal, but demonstrate all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. So our lives are supposed to solicit approval and close the mouth of those who mock Christianity. Whether you're a woman or a young man or a slave, we're supposed to beautify the gospel, not solicit blasphemy against Christ. Paul summarizes this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. This is the calling of the Christian, to be a light in the world, to be above reproach, to be blameless, to be innocent, because you are a child of God. Instead, the false teachers are characterized by Greed in verse 3. Sensuality and now greed. And oftentimes in the New Testament, sensuality and greed come as a pair. In Ephesians 5 verse 5, for example, Paul says, No immoral or impure person or a greedy person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So there's that pairing between greed and immorality. Those two sins often come as a pair in the New Testament. And they are greedy, intending, in verse 3, to exploit you with false words. If you were to continue to do some more research into the lives of the current false teachers, you would understand how many people they've defrauded. Some of them actually have spent time in prison for that fraud. They exploit people, and the terminology that Peter uses here is actually the term for trafficking. That word is repulsive to us. Because when we hear it, we often think of sex trafficking, a horrible sin and a horrible crime. But Peter wants to be graphic in some sense, to say they are trafficking your souls. They're here to take advantage of you, to destroy you, and they profit off your soul. 
instead of caring for the sheep of God, they profit off of them. Ezekiel 34, verse 2, God says, The shepherds of Israel have fed themselves. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been shepherding themselves. Should not the shepherds shepherd the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You sacrifice the fat sheep without shepherding the flock. That is the end game, is to profit off people. And unfortunately, they do so off the poorest of the poor in, on every continent. And so their perversion of the truth and their preoccupation with sin and sensuality in verse 3 leads them to judgment. Verse 3 says their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. There's a Hebrew parallelism going on here. Peter is a, is a Jew writing in a Hebraic style, creates a parallel here. Their judgment is not idle. Their destruction is not sleeping. In other words, perdition and judgment and condemnation awaits them with unsleeping eyes, says one commentator. Contrast this with 1 Peter 3.12. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. There's the imagery of judgment is awake and watching them in order to bring them to condemnation versus God watching the righteous intending to bless them. That's the contrast that Peter paints between 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2 for the righteous and the unrighteous, the godly and the ungodly. God is not blind to their evil deeds. And God has prepared judgment for them and destruction. And so to demonstrate and to prove that a judgment awaits them and that God will be vindicated and God will be just in the future, Peter, in verses 4 through 11, provides three portraits of judgment on the ungodly. In verses 1 through 3, he predicts the coming of the ungodly. In verses 4 through 11, he gives us three portraits of the ungodly. In order to demonstrate that judgment will be certain. And so in verse 4, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So Peter goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 6. And in this little illustration of judgment upon angels, what he's trying to demonstrate is that God's judgment is impartial. It doesn't matter what rank you have. You could be an angelic being. God will still judge sin. They were exalted creatures. God did not exempt them from judgment. In other words, there is no creature too lofty for God to judge. No one will escape God's judgment. God is no respecter of persons, in other words. No one is untouchable with God. And so Peter says, these angels, when they sinned, God sent them to hell, committed them to pits of darkness. Peter picks up on a Greek mythological word that is the word Tartarus, Tartarus. And it had to do with a place that was subterranean, kind of the lowest part of Hades. 
And in Greek mythology, this is where divine judgment was demonstrated. It was a place characterized by darkness and gloom, a place of confinement for the rebellious gods and the most wicked humans. And so Peter picks up this term because it comes with imagery to his readers. It's the place of darkness and judgment for the worst of the worst. But it was a temporary detention place. And he says they were committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. In other words, there's even in this first indication that this is a temporary holding place until final judgment that awaits them, that is reserved for them. It's a picture of handing somebody over for imprisonment until the final judgment is rendered. And the terminology of pits of darkness has a similar idea. It's severity, it's severe gloom, it's, it's some, a place of, in the underworld that is. And this judgment of the angels is juxtaposed with Noah. In verse 5 he said, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So whenever this happened, verse 4, whenever that happened in history, it seems to be closely aligned with the story of Noah. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3, you can flip back just a couple pages. In verse 19, Peter says something similar. Jesus, he was crucified in verse 18, but then he was resurrected at the end of verse 18. And it says, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So again, now there's a connection of some spirits imprisoned in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. So Peter, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, has a similar illustration. He's talking about Jesus being crucified and then being resurrected. And then in that process, he goes and declares victory to imprisoned spirits. In early Jewish literature, around the same time of the New Testament, there's a book that circulated by the name of First Enoch. In that book, in multiple places, it talks about fallen angels that were bound in chains, held in a prison from the time of Noah. So what Peter writes aligns with what extra-biblical literature from the same time also addresses. So it seems to be a story of fallen angels who were imprisoned during the time of Noah. And if you go to Jude, verse 6, Jude picks up on the same story. Jude, verse 6, says this, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for their judgment of the great day. So now again, he talks about angels who are imprisoned for a future day of judgment. This takes us all the way back to the beginning of the story of Noah. Noah, the story begins in Genesis chapter 6. So if you want to take a quick look at Genesis chapter 6, in the first four verses, this is the beginning of the flood came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, 
My spirit will not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It seems that Genesis 6 is best connected to Jude 6, to 1 Peter chapter 3, and to 2 Peter chapter 2, as well as 1 Enoch. And what happens here is that these angels, who did not keep their proper abode, we read, took, up, took on human flesh, saw the daughters of men, women, humans, and they went into them, had intercourse with them, and bore children. And when Jude says, back in Jude, verse 7, he says, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, so we just talked about angels, but he makes a comparison, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way, again, another comparison, whatever happened with the angels in verse 6, in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So now we have an insight into what these angels did. Whatever happened in Sodom and Gomorrah is similar to what the angels did connected to Genesis chapter 6. So what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, if you don't know the story, it's in Genesis chapter 19. And in verse 1, it says, Two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And then in verse 5, before they lay down, the men of the city, so these are now Sodomites and people of Gomorrah, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? And remember, these are angels. Bring them out so that we may have sexual relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind them. And verse 11 says this. The angels struck the men outside who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. So as we synthesize all of these passages, what seems to be happening is that fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6 saw the women in a time period. They took on human bodies and they went into them and had intercourse with them. Strange flesh, angels and humans, that is what that means. And God decided to judge them. And so he put them in a temporary place. Tartarus is the word that Peter uses. The pits of darkness. He bound them up in there. And when Jesus was resurrected, he went in and proclaimed victory to those demons that were being held in prison for final judgment. If we look at all these passages together, it's fair to say that they're still in prison awaiting final judgment. And so Peter, back in 2 Peter chapter 2, uses that as an illustration to say that God doesn't care about the rank that you hold. You could be an exalted angel. And if you sin, judgment awaits you. That's the point of this story. If God did not ignore the sin of these lofty beings, 
he will certainly not look past your sin because you are lesser in the hierarchy in, in some sense. Now, we understand that good angels or godly angels, faithful angels to God in Hebrews 1, serve us. They're ministers to us. But in this case, his argument is from the greater to the lesser. To God, rank doesn't matter. And so in verse 4, he says, he delivered them over to the pits of darkness. He did not spare them. In Romans 8.32, Paul uses the exact same terminology to say, God the Father did not spare his son and delivered him over for our sins. Somebody has to pay for sin. Either Christ paid for your sin because God did not spare him and delivered him over, or you will pay for your sin as the angels will pay for their sins. That's the parallel we see here terminologically. Is that in God's eyes, sin is so evil that it has to be punished, which is the beauty of the gospel that we just sang about. His grace is more. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And God says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, all of your sins, past, present, and future, will be forgiven you. And then you will be set on the path toward godliness. Peter emphatically writes, God will judge even the angels. But then he moves to the second illustration, verse 5, and he says, during the time of Noah, the world was destroyed. And here he shows us the extent of God's judgment. The extent of God's judgment takes us back to Genesis 5, the passage I already read. And if you recall, as the people are described of that era, it says that every thought of their heart was only evil continually. That gives us an insight into the wickedness of man at that time. And the entire human race, except for eight people, were doomed to judgment. But we see in verse 9 of Genesis 6 that he was, or Noah that is, was a righteous man. And in verse 5 of Second Peter, it says he was a righteous man, a preacher of righteousness. In other words, his life, preaching righteousness, is what demonstrated that he was righteous. Yes, God imputed righteousness to him. God forgave him. God saved him. But then he would demonstrate that righteousness given to him by living a life of righteousness and preaching to the world that was about to be judged. It's as if Peter comes back to the topic of godliness and righteousness. In the middle of talking about ungodliness, he says, go back and remember that there is an expectation of righteousness and Noah was one of those examples. In other words, in verse 5, the point is this. Yes, the whole world was judged. That's the extent of God's judgment. But God preserved Noah with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. God's judgment will not accidentally sweep up the godly, the righteous, who have been given the righteousness of Christ. God is not indiscriminate about his judgment. No, he was preserved as an illustration that the godly will be protected, but the ungodly will be judged. 
You remember Genesis 18, right before the Sodom and Gomorrah story takes place, when God comes to Abraham to remind him that a son will be born to him, Isaac that is, but then he also says, let me tell you what's about to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah because your nephew Lot lives over there. And God tells him, previews for him the judgment that's about to happen. And Abraham pleads and negotiates with God. Well, what if there are 50 righteous people? Will you still destroy the city? And God says no. And they go down all the way to 10. The patience of God. Abraham is bold from 50 down to 10. And God, the final verse, verse 32, the final statement before God leaves is, if there are 10 righteous people, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The fact that they were destroyed indicates that there were not 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot was rescued. Another illustration, as we see in verses 6 and 7, of God protecting the righteous. But the righteousness of man cannot extend extend or be imputed to other men. Psalm 49 Verse 7 says this, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. We see an illustration of this in Ezekiel chapter 13 and chapter 14. Ezekiel is written to the exilic generation in Judah. And God is explaining why the exile is justice for their sin. And in chapter 14, verse 13, it says the following. Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job were in this city by their own righteousness. They could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. So in the context of explaining the exile on Judah, that it was fair judgment for God to destroy the city. And right before the passage I just read, God talks about false prophets and false teachers, the evil Leaders, spiritual leaders in Israel, you can see that in Ezekiel 8 through 11 especially. And then in chapter 13, there's more of an emphasis on them. And God says, the city is sinful. The spiritual leaders are sinful. The people are sinful. I will destroy Judah. But what if at that time period, Noah, Daniel, and Job were alive? With their own righteousness, they could not preserve the whole city. In other words, their righteousness could not extend to the rest of Judah. That's the point of Psalm 49. Why would Ezekiel 14 mention Noah, Job, and Daniel of all the people in the Old Testament? Well, Noah, Genesis 6, 9 says this. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. He walked with God. Job 1.8 says, God says to Satan, there is no one like Job on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And of Daniel, in Daniel 6, 4, it says, his enemies could not find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So in Ezekiel 14, we have three individuals presented as illustrations of righteousness. 
in those passages, they're defined as righteous individuals. They're presented as such. And so God uses them as an example to say, think of the most righteous people you can think of in Jewish history. Even though they are righteous and they walked with God, their righteousness isn't good enough to cover the sins of other people. Because the cost of the soul of man is high. And according to 1 Peter 1 and Acts 20, it cost the precious blood of the Lamb. So as we go through 2 Peter, Peter reminds us, yes, God protects the godly as he judges the ungodly. But that cost is significant. It came at the price of the death of the Son of God. And then in verses 6 through 9, he moves to the third illustration, Sodom and Gomorrah. And here God illustrates the severity of his judgment. From rank to extent to now the severity. And the opening words in the original in verse 6 are very alarming and jolting. Because literally what we see here is focusing on the ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in your, in your translation, most likely it says destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The word there is catastrophe. The catastrophe of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened. In Genesis 19.24, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And archaeologists cannot find the exact location of Sodom and Gomorrah to this day. God completely obliterated those cities. But you have to remember what Sodom and Gomorrah was like before Genesis 19. In Genesis 13, the servants of Lot and the servants of Abraham are fighting over the same water sources because they're all trying to raise sheep for the the masters. And so Abraham and Lot meet and they say, okay, let's part ways. You go that way, I go that way. And Abraham, being the more humble individual, says, Lot, pick whatever territory you want. I'll go the opposite direction. Well, Lot decides to pick the valley toward Zoar, toward the land of Egypt, the valley of Jordan specifically. But listen to what it says. It was well watered everywhere like the garden of Yahweh. So Sodom and Gomorrah resembled the Garden of Eden. Lot did not pick the Death Valley. He picked Huntington Gardens to go live at. Sodom and Gomorrah was like the Garden of Yahweh prior to God's judgment. That is the severity of the judgment of God. God will completely destroy and judge. And in verse 6 it says, as an example to the ungodly in the future. That's the severity of the judgment of God. And what is it, does it say about Lot? One well, verse 7, he rescued Lot, righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented. Day after day, by their lawless deeds, and the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. What he illustrates is that the righteous individual, while in the world, he is not of it. She is not of it. 
And so Jesus prays to protect us from the evil one while we are still living in this world. And the example from Lot's life is that he's being oppressed and tormented every single day by the conduct of the people around him. It bothered him. It vexed him. It brought severe mental pain. It exhausted him. That's the terminology here. It is to exhaust somebody, to wear them down. He lived there and he was righteous. Which also suggests that his conscience wasn't seared. He did not become conformed to his world. Romans 12.1, for example. If the moral degradation of our society doesn't bother you as a Christian, there's a problem. If the fact that the elections are about to take place in a couple days, and, and the first proposition in our own state is to bring abortion into the Constitution, that should bother you. To bring that evil sin into the highest law of this state, the Constitution. And I think we can predict the way this state will vote. If the assault on children in the womb, in the public education system, by medical professions that our pastor talked about even this morning, it doesn't provoke you, there's something wrong with your understanding of God's expectations of godliness. Lot was tormented by the conduct of his generation. We should be tormented by what's happening around us in our country and in our world. That is an example of godliness. That is proof of godliness. And God intervened in the life of Lot and protected him. But verse 9 says, But he keeps the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Who are these ungodly individuals? Well, in verses 10 through 19, he gives us the profile of these ungodly leaders. He predicts them in verses 1 through 3. He gives us three portraits of judgment that's coming on the ungodly. And now he will profile the ungodly in verses 10 to 11. And to summarize these verses, the characteristics are lust, greed, lies, ungodliness, lawlessness, unrighteousness, anarchy, arrogance, blasphemy, temptation, damnation, hypocrisy, and slavery to sin. Those are the terms from this paragraph, verses 10 to 19. That is what characterizes the ungodly. And verse 10 really summarizes them for us. Especially those who indulge the flesh, that's lust, with its corrupt desires and despise authority, that's lawlessness. The ungodly are characterized by lust and lawlessness. And the first thing he focuses on is in verse 10, they are daring, they're self-willed, they don't tremble when they revile angelic beings, angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment upon them before the Lord. But these are like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, revile where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. So arrogance is the first element that he features here. They are daring, they're brazen, they're self-willed. Nothing will get in the way of them satisfying their gratification, their lusts. And so the example of that is they revile angelic beings. Even angels know their limits in verse 11. But these ungodly do not. In Jude, there's an illustration of the the archangel Michael. When he was opposing Satan, it says that he did not 
render a verdict against Satan. Because he knew that Satan, as Lucifer, the highest of all the angels who was created back in the beginning, he was of higher rank. And so Michael, the archangel, the faithful angel, he knew his own limits. And he said, the Lord rebuke you. So even angels have limits. The ungodly are so arrogant that they have no limits and they mock angelic beings. They're like animals to be destroyed in verses 12 through 13. And then he gives us an example of this lifestyle. They suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and in Romans chapter 13, Paul talks about the sins of immorality being committed in the dark at night. In the Roman Empire, there was an understanding that as long as you commit those vile, immoral sins at night, it was okay, but you do not bring them into the daylight. Here he says, they revel in their pleasure in the daytime. They're worse than the pagan Romans in regards to their pursuit of immorality. Even the Romans had limits to what they were willing to do in the daylight in the context of sin. And so they pursue, verses 14 through 16, lust. Their eyes are full of adultery. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. They are cursed children. Like Balaam, Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So now he focuses on their greed and their lust. Again, a pair reappears here. Their heart is trained in greed. It's the word for athletic discipline. It's what the Olympians do. They discipline themselves, what they eat, how they train, how they sleep, how they spend their free time. He picks up an Olympic term from the ancient world to discuss somebody who is so disciplined, so rigorous about his life. And he applies that term to the ungodly. And they say they are disciplined. They have trained themselves as to greed. They're fully invested into this sin. Just as an Olympian trains, they pursue sin. And the example is Balaam. And the reason he's brought into it is because his main point was to have a transaction to gain wages by cursing the people of God. That was unrighteous in God's eyes if you go back to Numbers 22 to 25. And God had to have a donkey speak in verse 16 to restrain the madness of the prophet. How far does God have to go to stop you from sinning? That's the point. What does God have to do to stop you in your tracks? And to cause you to recognize that you are down a path of sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness. As Balaam was. A donkey spoke to stop him. In your life, what will it take for you to repent from your sin and pursue godliness? And so because of all this, they are, verse 17, springs without water, mists driven by a storm. The black darkness is reserved for them. They speak arrogant words. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They promise them freedom, but themselves they are trapped in corruption. But what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. So now he says they are frauds. They are clouds without water. You see a cloud, you expect water. They're frauds. They're hypocrites. 
It's a facade. And they promise you something, but they can never deliver because they themselves are trapped in sin. And so the end result of that is judgment. Verse 17, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Verse 9, they are kept under punishment for the day of judgment. And verse 20, the last state will be worse for them than the first. Those are statements about judgment, and that takes us to our final point, and that is the punishment on the ungodly. The punishment on the ungodly is the catastrophe that awaits them on the level of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the darkness that we just read about. And verse 20 is borrowed from Matthew chapter 12. The last state is worse than the first. It's when Jesus talks about casting out a demon, sending him away from a man's heart. It's all clean. And then unless a man replaces that cleanness with Christ, the, devil, the, the demons come back and multiply. They multiply. And so the last state is worse than the first. He takes this from Matthew 12, 43 to 45. As an illustration that that is what awaits them. Something far worse than they've experienced so far. But the main point is this. Back in verse 1, he said, they deny the master who bought them. And in verse 21, he said, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, turn away from it, from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Dogs and pigs. Not the greatest or most revered creatures in first century Israel. Unkosher on one hand, and the dogs were also seen as dangerous in that society. And he uses them as an example to say their nature was never changed. They might look clean on the outside. They might come teaching eloquently. But inside, they ultimately return to their own true nature. They are pretenders. They are fake. Jesus talks about this. In Matthew 13, he talks about the parable of the wheat and the tares. In other words, saying that in the church, there are tares. But it's only at the very end, when he sends his angels to come in, to the church, the broader universal church, and he will cleanse the tares. Mike Riccardi wrote his PhD on trying to understand this verse along with other verses that talk about atonement. What does it mean for them to have been bought by the master? And this is what he writes. Peter speaks of these false teachers as if they were believers, charitably speaking of them according to their profession of faith. What others had supposed them to be even though he knew they were never believers in the first place. In other words, in the church, you have false believers. Those who profess, but do not practice. Those who are associating themselves with Christ, but are not attached to Christ, as John 15 expects us to abide in Christ. As Titus 1.16 says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. And as we think about the life of godliness and ungodliness, this is an illustration and a warning that in the church there will be deceivers and false prophets and false teachers, and this is how you identify them, by their ungodliness. But ultimately, I do think it's also a warning to them, calling them to godliness in chapter 1, calling them to godliness in chapter 3, when he says you are to be spotless and blameless in verse 14 of chapter 3. 
He puts this chapter in the middle to remind us, are you ungodly? Is that the path you're on? Ask yourself that question. That is the application of this chapter to each of us as believers. Are you a fraud? Are you a hypocrite? Is this just a facade for everybody to observe? Because deep down, your life is filled with sensuality, arrogance, pride, lust. You see, the extreme example from the false teachers should jolt us towards self-reflection. Do I have the righteousness of Christ? Have I been bought by the master? And does my life reflect that? Or do I simply profess that he is my master? Because in Matthew 7, Jesus says, On that day, on the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? And Jesus said, On that day, I will tell them, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It comes back to the same terminology. Lawlessness. What is your life characterized by? And if you are a true believer, your life is characterized by godliness. And when we sin, we repent. And I think this prayer from the Valley of Vision reflects your heart and your desires. The prayer is called regeneration. O God of the highest heaven, occupy the throne of my heart. Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion resist your holy war. Manifest thy mighty power and make me thine forever. You have loved me, espoused me, received me, purchased, washed, favored, clothed, and adorned me. When I was worthless, vile, soiled, polluted. I was dead in iniquities, having no eyes to see you, no ears to hear you, no taste to relish your joys, no intelligence to know you. But your spirit has quickened me, has brought me into a new world as a new creature, has given me a spiritual perception, has opened to me your word as light, guide, solace, and joy. Your presence is to me a treasure of unending peace. Keep me, for I cannot keep myself. Protect me, that no evil befall me. Let me lay aside every sin admired by many. Help me to walk by your side, lean on your arm, hold conversation with you. From henceforth, I may be salt of the earth and a blessing to all. That's the desire of the godly heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the righteousness that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. We know that we have no righteousness of our own, not even to save ourselves. And because of that, we thank you for the cross and the resurrection of our Savior, our Master. Help us to live lives that demonstrate that he truly is our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. I pray for those who do not recognize Jesus as Lord yet, that you would quicken them in their dead hearts, and that the Holy Spirit would give them life and bring them into your eternal kingdom so we may rejoice forever with you, worshiping Christ for eternity. We pray this to the honor of the entire Trinity. Amen.